so when you read God's Word, sometimes we forget that especially this last third of our Bible is a lot of letters, letters that are written to individuals, letters that are written to churches. And because they're letters, and we've been looking at one letter in particular, and that's the letter to Galatians, because they're letters, it's like one-sided conversation that we're hearing. We're hearing what someone wrote, but we don't always know exactly what was on the other side of that that was being written. So it takes a little bit of work sometimes to grasp exactly what is going on, and we're trying to put that work in. I, I thought I would switch gears a little bit today, and I'm going to ask you to like follow with me as we switch gears, because what I'd like to do is a little bit of a thought experiment, a hypothetical situation that I want to lead us in for the first part of our message today that I think will help orient us to what the passage says. And then after, after I give us a hypothetical situation to consider, then I'm going to ask uh, Rachel to come read. And she's going to read a portion of Galatians that we are looking at today. And then we're going to lean in to appreciate what God is saying to us. So first, the thought experiment. All right, imagine with me, let's transport ourselves 2,000 years back. And as we do that, I want you to imagine a young lady. I want you to imagine a young lady in her 20s. And I think this is actually going to help us appreciate Galatians more if we do this. So she is living in a region that is called Galatia. It actually would be our modern-day Turkey. That is where she lives. She is a slave. And saying that, we need to qualify. So she wasn't kidnapped. That, that isn't exactly the model of slavery that we should be thinking. And she wasn't necessarily mistreated. But still, slavery is far from ideal. But many times, it, it was just a part of an economic arrangement for survival so that she would be able to live. Maybe one day she would be free. So do you have that picture in your mind? Imagine that a small group of people came to her town and one of that, one person in that group, his name was Paul. And he comes to this town in this region of southern Galatia. And he begins to share with something that he calls, he refers to consistently as good news. And he talks over and over again about this good news of light and life and freedom and hope. But he connects that good news to a person. So as much as he's talking about good news, He's talking about a person named Jesus, and he's saying this name, Jesus, over and over and over again. He tells her and the others who are there, he tells her Jesus was a Jew, which meant he was of a descendant of this family of Abraham. But while he was a Jew, he came with blessings and hope and a message for all the nations, every ethnicity, every nationality, which is good news to her because... She is not a Jew. She is a Gentile. Jesus is the Son of God. Paul speaks, and she's listening. Not only is he the Son of God, Jesus has always existed. He even claimed to be one with the Heavenly Father. He came in the flesh. He was born in a small village near Jerusalem. Paul goes on to tell her he had a very humble mother and a humble earthly father. He lived perfectly, always doing what God wanted. 
Paul begins to share with anybody who will listen in Galatia, that when Jesus spoke, he would say things like this, that God the Father loved the world so much, and he showed that love in this way, that he gave his life on the cross, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, would not lose their life, but would be rescued, would be saved. Jesus would talk about believing in him, giving life. Even beyond that, Jesus claimed to be the one person who had authority over all the world, who had power over death and sin and could grant forgiveness. The message that that young lady heard was that Jesus died. It's what we've sung this morning, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, came back to life, and appeared to people like people saw him, his body, alive after they had watched him die that Jesus ascended to heaven and gave a gift to all who would believe in him, and that gift is the Holy Spirit, another person who resides in us. And everybody who turns from everything else and trusts in Jesus, completely depending on him for their life and salvation, will be rescued. It was completed by grace. You can't earn it. You, you never could work for it. But God has done what we couldn't do. The message was so powerful that, again, Imagine that this young lady hears that message and like millions of other people all over this world, she places her faith in Jesus the Messiah. She believes. Following that belief, she is immersed in water, which was to identify with Jesus as he was immersed in water. But even beyond that, just as Jesus was crucified and buried and rose again, she is with him in his burial and with him as she is raised to walk a new kind of life. She has a new relationship with the Father, a new relationship with the Son, a new relationship with the Holy Spirit. She became, imagine she becomes not just one believer on her her own, but now she's part of a group. She begins to meet with other people who have also said yes to Jesus, who have also put their faith in him. And she begins to meet with them on a regular basis an assembly, a gathering that sings and prays and speaks God's word to each other and, and uses their lives and their gifts to, to love God and to love others. Are you still tracking? Because this is where Galatians takes a little bit of a turn. Imagine again with me. I know it's hypothetical, but stay with me here. Imagine that a few months later after she had heard that message, responded to that message with faith in Jesus Christ, Imagine another group comes to Galatia. This group is also, several in this group are also Jewish. And this group also talked about God's intent to bless the nations through the family of Abraham. This group also talks about Jesus dying on the cross, rising from the dead. But then they begin to ask other questions. So this next group that comes asks, like, Paul did tell you about the writings of Moses, didn't he? He did tell you about the law, didn't he? He did tell you about keeping the observances, the rituals, the the feasts, the sacrifices. He did tell you that the centerpiece of God's plan was the law, the instruction, the Torah, that you need to have that as a part of your life. Jesus is crucial, but what you need now is you're going to need the law to help you become fully righteous in God's sight. 
You can imagine as this second group comes, they are saying there's dividing lines. There's dividing lines. They're telling this young lady and they're telling anybody else who would listen, there are dividing lines. And if you really want to be on God's side, if you really want to show him how serious you are, you're going to have to wake up each day with a question. And that is, how can I do what the law requires of me today? And then tomorrow you're going to have to wake up again and go, what does the law require me today? And how can I perform? And how can I do it? This is the way you're going to be righteous. This is the way you're going to be blessed. This is the way you're going to walk into these blessings that God has promised. You can appreciate, again, it's a hypothetical situation, but you can appreciate if they heard one message and now she's hearing another message, how confusing it might have been. I mean, the questions are like, okay, I know God made promises to Abraham to bless the nations, but is he now most interested in like me doing my part to keep the law and to perform? Is that what's most important now? And maybe another question would be, when it comes to the law and all these things where God says, do this and do this and do this, what role does that play in my life now? What's the point of it? Why did God give it? You can imagine another question she might have. If she thinks about it long enough, are there different kinds of Christians? Are there really like the serious ones and then the half-hearted ones? Does God think some are better than others? The Jesus followers who are Jews, are they different from the, the ones who are Gentiles? What if, what if you're a slave? What if you're free? What if you're male? What if you're female? Are there different classes? And, and where, do, where do I fit in that whole mix? What we know is word got back to Paul that something had been taught that was wrong, that was undermining the faith of people in Galatia. He's so disturbed because what he says is, like, this is, this is twisted. You've taken something good and you've twisted it. And so he writes a letter, and no letter that I read of in the New Testament is more to the point than Galatians. Maybe, maybe we realize better because a lot's at stake in what people like this hypothetical person I described, a lot is at stake in what they believe and what they're trusting in. So we call the letter that he wrote Galatians, and we're pretty deep into it now. We're in chapter 3. So I'm going to ask Rachel to come. And with that as a background, she's going to begin reading in verse 15 of Galatians 3 and take us uh, deeper into what Paul has to say. Come read for us, Rachel. Galatians 3:15-29. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. 
But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise made by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Thank you, Rachel, for reading, and thank you for sticking with me on somewhat of this thought experiment and a hypothetical situation. Because I think what Paul is emphasizing is some really important concepts, and when you hear blessings and promise and law and covenant and Abraham, and it can easily be overwhelming, and it's trying to follow the logic. So I, I want to make sure we can appreciate what Paul was saying then and also what God's Word is saying to us today. If we take again this young lady in our thought experiment, one thing, one concept that Paul is emphasizing that, that would certainly apply to us today is that God's promises always point to Jesus. God's promises are always meant to point to Jesus. Paul emphasizes that he, he uses the word promise, I think it counted eight times in just the few verses that, that Rachel read. And when God makes promises, they're not cheap. They're, they're part of who he is and they're gifts and, and God is generous. So when God is making these promises to Abraham, we ought to train our senses that when we hear promise, we think the way that is going to be completed, the way that's going to be fulfilled is in Jesus. So in verse 16, where the promises to Abraham come up and we're told even there, the promises are pointing to the one offspring, which is Christ, which is the Messiah, which is Jesus. And we'll get into how promises relate to law, but even look at verse 22. The promise is given to those who believe in Jesus, the Messiah. Verse 29, we belong to Jesus. We are Christ. We are heirs according to promise. Promise is connected with the Messiah, Jesus. So in our hypothetical scenario, she needed to hear that the promise that was made to Abraham wasn't pointing to the law, it was pointing all the way to Jesus. That way she wouldn't be tempted to think like, well, maybe the law is the most important thing. Paul clarifies and hammers it again and again and again, but more than any hypothetical situation that I could come up with. I think we need to hear it because God has made promises to us. Some of those we receive by extension, the promises to Abraham we're receiving by extension. But if I were just to highlight some of the promises that God has made, God has promised to be our refuge and our strength to provide us the capacity to endure, to spiritually survive. God has promised to be with us always so that we would never have to feel I'm all alone and there is no one to help. God has promised to be for us so that it doesn't even matter who's against us because God is for us. God has promised to listen to us when we need his help and his companionship and his guidance. God has promised to give us a full eternal life. And what I'm saying is all of those promises are pointing us to Jesus. 
How can I say that? Well, when, when we read that God has promised to be our strength, Paul would put it this way, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. When, when I say that God has promised to be with us always, he won't leave us. This is the words of Jesus who also gives us his spirit to live in us. All the promises are pointing to Jesus. When, when I say that God is for us, he has promised to be for us. He's promised to be for us because we are in Jesus. And if God didn't spare his only son, how will he not give us everything we need? God has promised to give us a full eternal life and that comes through Jesus. These aren't just vague religious promises. This isn't just God talk that we can throw in and, and talk uh, like spiritual things. These are wrapped up in a person. So when we talk to each other about God and spiritual things, we can remind each other it's not just vaguely religious language that people of faith use. It's specific language because we have promises that have been fulfilled in Jesus when we pray for each other, which I hope we do. I hope God brings many people in this congregation to mind and we pray for them on a regular basis when we take those prayers and we pray for God's promises to be evident in someone's life. As we close that prayer, maybe even as we enter into that time of prayer, we say, I'm praying this in the name of Jesus with his authority, not my own. All God's promises are wrapped up in a very real person named Jesus. God's promises point to Jesus, but this passage actually doesn't just talk about promises. It also talks about another thing that the Bible talks a lot about, and that is the law the Torah, the instruction of God. And, and Paul's going to emphasize another concept, not just about promises, but law. And the concept he is going to emphasize in this passage is that law has a limited capacity. The law, and we're going to talk about what capacities it does have, but the law has a limited capacity. The word law, I think I counted seven different times it's used in this passage. So Paul's talking about, okay, what, what is the law designed to do? What does it have the capacity to do? It's certainly important to realize and think about what something is designed to do. So many of you know my uh, wife works quite a bit in uh, building and remodeling things, and so she was working in the garage yesterday, and of course she had her power tools because what you get Shauna for Christmas is power tools. What you get me is kitchen gadgets. And we're quite happy with that arrangement. There is my wife's helper. She is like building something. And our neighbor a month or so ago is like Christmas in the summer because he had given her a new power tool that she could like. So I'm along for the ride. Yes, ma'am. I'm glad to help however I can. And she, what she says is like this tool, like I don't know that I could do this job without this tool. And it's a, it's a reminder, isn't it, that certain jobs are just tailor-made for certain things. So I say all that because what is the law designed to do? What are the rules, the, the, the statutes, the ordinances, the, the codes that are given to us? What are they designed to do? Here's what the law does really, really well. One thing the law does really, really, one thing it's really, really good at is it helps us realize the weight of transgressions. And I use that word intentionally, the, the weight of transgressions, because it's used in verse 19. It says that the law was added because of transgressions. It's a different word than the word sin, although they're cousins. I mean, they're related. 
But when we talk about sin, it is actually like missing the mark. That's at the root of sin. It's missing the mark. It's like, here's the target, and you missed it. You've, you, you fell short of the target. But when we read about transgressions, we're reading about something. I mean, n- nothing about sin is good. But when you read about transgressions, you're reading about something more personal and something much more offensive. It is, it is the, the thought of a, of a rebel a thought of, here's the boundary line, and I'm not going to do it. It's clarity on, like, that is wrong. You didn't just, like, miss the mark. It was wrong, and it hurt people, and it wasn't the way you were supposed to live. And the law paints those lines bright. We're not confused. The law says, this is what is good. This is what is true. This is what is beautiful. And this most definitely is not. This is what is false. This is what is harmful. This is what is destructive. This is what leads to death. And the law tells us that. It's great at that. That's its capacity. It has the capacity, the power to do that. The law also, in this passage, the word guardian comes up in verse 24 and verse 25. The law is our guardian. So in other words, the law can provide some protective custody if we were to use that, those words, the law can, can guard us. The law guards us, but it only guards us for a season. The law can, can guard us. So some looser translations don't use the word guardian. They actually use the word babysitter. So the babysitter has some amount of responsibility, some amount of authority, but it's limited. It's limited in scope. It's limited in time. It's, it's a guardian protects for a season. And the law does that. It protects us. It protects us by disciplining us for a season. It, it helps us exercise some restraint so we don't kill each other. The law says you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. You need to do this. You need to do that so that we can live together. And the law has the capacity to go, let me, let me like hold things in check for a while. And that might be what the law can do. But remember, it has limited capacity. The law didn't come first. And Paul goes out of his way to say, 430 years before the law showed up, God was given promises. God didn't start with the law. He started with promises. And the law has its limits because the law doesn't make us righteous. As a matter of fact, look at verse 21 of Galatians 3. Galatians 3.21 says, For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would come that way. It would, of course it would come by the law if that's the way it worked, but it doesn't work that way. There's no law that's going to say, see, now you're righteous. It doesn't work that way. It actually points out the opposite things. We shouldn't count on the law to do something it wasn't made to do. The law also, it regularly says the law can't make you free. The law can help us live within our freedom, but it can't make us free. As a matter of fact, as I read in verse 22, I see the word Things are imprisoned under sin. In verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The law can't make us free. So the good news that a lady in Galatia needed to hear, and good news that all of us need to hear in Newark today, is that we are not meant to go back to the law. We're not meant to resurrect and reorient our life and reorganize everything so that we can meticulously follow every sort of rule that we could come up with in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. There's something much greater 
that has arrived. I think we all need to hear that because all laws have limits. I'm actually not tempted to like reorganize my life so that I can keep every Jewish sacrifice and feast. That's not my temptation. But everywhere there are humans, there are going to be some sort of laws. Some are going to be formal, some are going to be informal. We talked about this last week. Everywhere you go, everywhere there are human beings, everywhere there are cultures, people that live together, we're going to go, this kind of behavior and attitude should be celebrated. And this, like, probably should even be punished. We're going to make those rules. I look back, even just the way kind of informal rules are sometimes the most powerful informal laws. I look back at old pictures of baseball games and football games, and there they are, I don't know, maybe the 1930s and 40s, they're all wearing suits, like three-piece suits at the games, because that's what you did back then. Like, you go to the football game, put on your three-piece suit, and I think, how crazy. And, and, and you can come up with all these laws that you go, you know, those moral sins, they look kind of legalistic. They said you couldn't do this and couldn't do this, couldn't do this. How legalistic. You got to follow all those laws. I, I want to be free from that. And yet, here we are in 2021, we have our own codes, ways we behave, behaviors we say as a society, this is okay, this is not okay. One way, some more informal way, we say, these are the laws that I try to live by. I'm behind someone the other day, and I think I stopped counting at 19 bumper stickers. And if you have all, if you have 100 bumper stickers, good for you. But in them, they were telling, like, this is the way you should live. You should do this, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. They're preaching to me, saying, this is the way the good people live. And if you don't want to be on this side, then you can do whatever you want, but you're just a bad person. Because this is the law you should follow. This is the code. This is the mantra that should shape your life. We show our laws and our codes by profile pictures we put up, social media rants we make. I normally don't say things, but this time I had to tell everybody that you ought to whatever, whatever, and we lean in and say, this is the way life should be lived. But laws have limits. We can put all the signs in our yard we want, and we can try to tell ourselves, see, I'm doing right. See, I am right. I'm one of the good guys. I'm, I'm, I'm accepted. I, I'm okay. And Galatians 3 speaks loudly. You make up the law. It doesn't matter what law you make up. You make up the law. You can know that if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would come by the law. But it doesn't. Though all the laws and codes I could make up don't breathe life into my life. All the laws I could make Never make me righteous. God's not going to be impressed by, look at all the laws I made up and kept. Laws will never set us free. And every time I remember the limits of the law, it helps me appreciate even more deeply God's grace. Because I don't talk about limits when I talk about God's grace. Like limited capacity just seems like, yeah, let's not bring that up when we talk about God's grace. I'm not sure there's a limited capacity as if like there are these offenses you've committed against God but he only has a limited capacity to forgive only a certain number and sorry you don't get yours forgiven today it's not the way it works God's mercy and kindness I'm always saying about it your goodness will come running after me I think about all the times that I'm walking through trials and there's not a, a cap on grace Grace is designed to handle every trial I have. When I'm weak and I'm weary, 
the law has limited capacity. It's not going to help me. And God's grace is just this infinite store of help. When I feel dirty and ashamed before a holy God because of something I thought, said, or did, uh, done, I, I wonder if I wonder if the law can help. You know what it does? It, t- it tells you you are guilty and, and you should feel unclean. You should feel dirty because you didn't keep up the rules that you were supposed to. And God's grace comes in and cleanses. When I feel completely lost, God's grace brings us home. No limits. We've seen that laws have limits and God's promises are pointing us to Jesus. But one more concept that I think Paul emphasizes, and that is that this new era that Jesus has brought, this new era that has arrived in Jesus is meant to shape our identity, to form our identity. This new era that Jesus has brought in is meant to shape our identity, to form our identity. It's like there's a dividing line, and Galatians talks about it, and we understand that because even today we're celebrating July 4th where the date on the Declaration of Independence where the, the colony said, no longer are we going to be under British rule, and there's a declaration, and, and that marked a turning point on, on this continent for, for how lots of people would live. There's a dividing line, but infinitely more important than that dividing line, which was important, infinitely more important is the dividing line that the cross and the resurrection And the ascension of Jesus makes and says, there is now a new era and nothing is the same because of it. And and we, we read about it. We read kind of the words like until or now in verse 23, until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24, until Christ came. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, this era where the promises, it's like a dividing line between the promises were made and now the promises are being kept. The promises are being realized. When Jesus dies and rises from the dead, it's a new era, 100% accountable to him. Everybody is accountable to who he is, what he's done, and how much he loves. We're accountable to that. It's a new era. And the point that Paul is making is not just that it's a new era. It's a new era that is meant to shape who you understand yourself to be. If you're a believer, if you follow Jesus, that new era now is meant to say something that is most definitive about you. It's easy to feel lost. It's easy to wonder where I fit in. It's easy for society to put these labels and this label and that label, and I I don't even know where I fit in anymore. It's easy for a stage of life to change, a relationship to change, and go, "I I don't even know where I am anymore. Something's changed, and I'm not sure who I am. And just, I want you to hear quite loudly what Paul is saying the most important aspects of your identity are in verse 26. And I I love these verses here. Notice the identity statement. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And he could have said sons and daughters, and that would be absolutely true. I think the reason why he uses the word even specifically sons is because the, the culture said adopting someone as a son meant they had full rights and full privileges into the family, never to be cast out. You are, you are God's. You have the full rights of being a child of God. Verse 27, for as many 
of you as we're baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ, baptized into Christ, which we can just read through that pretty quickly and go, I, I think I understand what baptism means, but let me just like soak in that for a moment because baptism into Christ means life is totally reconfigured. You have solidarity, solidarity with Jesus. You're saying Jesus is alive. I, I'm, I'm alive just like he is risen and he is in me and I am remade and I am clothed with Christ. I've been united with Jesus. There's full identification with him full immersion into who he is, not, not even so much that you completely lose yourself, but actually that you find who you were really created to be. In this search for like, who am I? Who's my authentic self? That search is going to find itself into. Like, the only way that's going to have a happy ending is when you say, this is who I am. I am in Christ. And baptism is such an amazing picture. We're seeing something big when we see someone baptized because they're saying all these things, putting on, just like even putting on a, a, a jacket, putting on Christ. Verse 28, another identity statement. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female for you are all one in Christ. I don't think Paul's just highlighting a couple divisions in society there. I think there's ways society says these are the winners and these are the losers. These are the ones who are in this kind of realm and these are the ones who are not. And Paul is saying when Christ comes, he just obliterates all that. No need for social power markers. So a Gentile slave lady in Galatia could realize that I am in Christ just as much as any of the most powerful people could be in the world. Her status is secure. It's not in jeopardy. It's definitely not that there aren't distinctions. I mean, Paul knew there were distinctions between male and female and Jew and Gentile. What he's saying is, if we think those are giving us an advantage in this, it's a new era. I, I love verse 29 as well. It says, if you are Christ. Other translations put it this way. If you belong to Christ. It is a possessive term. Like if, if Christ has you, if you belong to him, something about that this week has just meant so much to me. What other identity markers you might think matter or that we might treat like, boy, this really matters. Are you edu educated or uneducated? Are you upper crust or are you kind of low rent? Are you, are you married or are you single? Are you of, of this nationality or not? When it comes to the people of God, it says you are one in Christ and you are even more than you are Christ. You belong to him. So whatever status makes you second guess who you are, whatever makes you feel lost and like confused about who you're supposed to be, there's such a word here spoken for you. What do we as a church, what are we supposed to do again and again say, we are one, we are one, we are the body of Christ. We're not elevating superior Christians over the, you know, the, the not so superior. I mean, that's just not the way we're meant to be. In the beginning, I created a hypothetical situation. But what I've been praying about is anything but hypothetical. I've been jotting down, okay, what do I, what do I want? What do I want from my own life? What do I want from us today? 
I think more than figuring out a hypothetical situation, I want you to grasp the fullness of the promises of God in Jesus. I want you to know those promises are meant for you and they're fulfilled and they're pointing you to Jesus. I want you to be able to, gra- to, to rest in Jesus when you feel disoriented and lost. I want you to be able to appreciate that there is no law that you could possibly keep that could make you alive, make you free, or make you righteous. I want you to gladly own the identity. I want us to be the people who gladly own the identity. I am in Christ. What he did on the cross was for me. What he did in the resurrection was for me. And I want you to fully rest your soul your life in Jesus and no one and nothing else. That's my goals today. That's what I'm praying for. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, thank you for the reminders in your word, the powerful reminders of an identity that has been formed, not because we worked at it, not because we just woke up and declared it one day, but because of what you have done because of the work that you have done in bringing us, incorporating us into Jesus Christ. We remind ourselves that our hope is found completely in him. Our rest, our satisfaction is in him alone. So we're grateful that you hold us and you hold us firmly in your grasp. We ask our requests in the name of Jesus our Messiah, our Savior. Amen. Let me invite you to stand. Let's sing.